Good evening to each one. Beautiful day, isn't it? Couldn't ask for any better. Um, and we, this is the close of a month of meetings around the Loma Linda area, and I can't think of a better place to close our time in this area before we go on. You do know I brag on you around the country. Quite a bit. People seriously wonder what, what is happening to the generation that's growing up, and I tell them there's Advent hope. <laughs> uh, so uh, you'll be, uh, you might hear somebody men uh, mention what I have said. The United States standard railroad gauge, that's the distance between the rails, is four feet eight and a half inches. Now, isn't that an unusual number? Four feet eight and a half inches. Why did they come up with that distance as a gauge for the railroad? Well, that's the way they built them in England. And the first U.S. railroads were built by English expatriates. Question at solved, right? Or now, why did the English people build the rails exactly at that strange distance? Because the first rail lines in England were built by the same people who built the pre-railroad tramways. And that's the gauge they used to build. Well, why did they use that gauge? Because the people who designed and built the tramways used the same jigs and tools that they used for building wagons, which used that same wheel spacing. Well, why did the wagons come to use that very odd wheel spacing? When they tried to use any other spacing, the wagons were prone to breaking down on some of the old long-distance roads because of the spacing of the old wheel ruts in those roads. So now you don't want to know the rest of it, don't you? Who built those old rutted roads that they had to adapt all of their tools to? Those long-distance roads in Europe were built by Imperial Rome for the benefit of their legions, and those roads have been used for centuries. They were the great road builders. And those initial ruts, which everyone had to match for fear of destroying their wagons, were first made by Roman war chariots as they traveled to make sure that the Roman Empire held together in one piece. Since the chariots were all made to certain specifications by Imperial Rome, they were all alike in the matter of wheel spacing. And so we have the answer to our question. But there's still another one, isn't there? Why did the Romans choose that wheel spacing? The United States standard railroad gauge of four feet, eight and a half inches, derives now from the military specification for an Imperial Roman Army war chariot. And you know what? The reason they designed their war chariots at that exact spacing was it was just wide enough to accommodate the rear ends of two war horses. So the next time you take a nice little trip on the train, looking down those rails, you can thank the rear end of war horses for your journey. Why do we do what we do? Because we've always done it that way. We've always done it that way. 
Past experience has a tremendous effect on present behavior and present attitudes. The way it's been is the way it is. Without a doubt now, the most pervasive and universal experience of every one of us has been that of sinning. From our first memory, we can remember things we did wrong when we took something we shouldn't, when we said something we shouldn't, and that memory is deep within us. And so from our first memory, we have sinned, sometimes constantly, sometimes intermittently. And even after being born again, we have continued to sin. And we need to confess and repent over and over again. So the question is, how could there be any other reality than that? Just like those old wheel ruts that we had to adapt everything to, do we not have to adapt our present thinking, our theology, and our hopes to the reality that sin is just about as, as present with us as eating or breathing or sleeping? It's a reality we cannot escape from, it seems. And could this be why any talk of living without sinning seems to be the ultimate fantasy, the ultimate impossibility. You ask your neighbor, you ask your friend, you ask yourself, and every one of us is in the pattern and has, have been all of our lives of sinning and repenting. Now, we do read that our Savior was tempted in all points like as we are, and we even read that the Son of God become Son of Man was without sin. And we believe it, but then we ask, there's, how can that connect with us? And so we have a terrible time trying to understand how Jesus could and we can't. And so we assign to Jesus different reasons. Well, he was God. Or he had a better nature than we do. Better equipment. Or he had a purer mind than I do. And so we come up with reasons that Jesus could and we can't. Now, before we go any farther, we need to identify precisely what this thing called sin is. In response to the age-old question, what is sin? A good Adventist will reply, sin is the transgression of the law. End of discussion. And certainly when we break God's Ten Commandment law, we sin. But you know there are other nuances to sin as well that you find in the Bible. Um, there's one in Proverbs chapter 10, verse 19, that says, Where words abound, sin will not be wanting. Talking too much is sin? Wow. While you're in the book of Proverbs, look at chapter 14. Proverbs chapter 14, verse 21. He that despiseth his neighbor sinneth. Have you looked down on your neighbor? Have you said, ah, look at him, her. Look at the way they dress. Look at the way they act. Look at their personality. He that despiseth his neighbor sinneth. Over to chapter 24. Proverbs tells us a lot about improper behavior. Proverbs chapter 24, verse 9. The thought of foolishness is sin. Have we done some foolish thinking now and then? 
just plain old foolish thinking about stuff that is irrelevant and not important, but just verbal sneezing. Hmm. Go to the New Testament with me. Romans chapter 14. Verse 23, Romans 14, 23. The last phrase summarizes the point. Whatsoever is not of faith is sin. If you do it for any other reason than believing that Jesus Christ is the Lord and master of your life, you do it for selfish reasons, even if it's a good thing. Whatsoever is not of faith is sin. If it's self-produced for selfish motives. James. James chapter 4 verse 17. Therefore, to him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, to him it is sin. Do we know a lot of things that we should do and we just don't do because we're either too lazy or too ashamed or don't have enough time or whatever the reason might be? We know what is right. We know we should help that person that is in need and we know their need, but we ignore it. Therefore, to him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, to him it is sin. These vistas of sin open up a whole new morass, don't they? More than just breaking one of the Ten Commandments in their superficial way. When we speak of sin, we are in mortal combat with the most deadly foe in the universe with all kinds of ways to move us into his plan. God's standard for his people is high. And if indeed there are differences between big and little sins, and I doubt there are, God's plan seems impossible because of all of these things. And therefore, we are drawn to a gospel which assures us that God understands that we can't do anything really but sin and he will accept us as long as we want to serve him while we don't really carry it out. And that gospel gives us that assurance that salvation is possible as long as we want to obey. Then we go to the book of Revelation. Spells out another kind of sin in that last church of which we are a part. What is its name? Laodicea. And it is lukewarm. Just lukewarm. Complacent. Apathetic. Not doing anything. Content with the status quo. Happy with a little bit of progress that we've made. Almost impossible to convince a Laodicean Adventist that he, need, he or she needs to make any changes because it's okay. It's not so bad after all. And the biggest problem of the Laodicean Adventist is pride. Pride. Looking at myself and saying I'm better than someone else is. That intellectual acceptance of truth without an experience that goes along with it. Pride of learning, especially in a place like this in which you struggle to learn, is very strong among us. Pride of learning. Pride of learning. Pride even in our strong Seventh-day Adventist church. Pride in a lot of things. Pride. Maybe we can even 
look to problems that we have in our institutions and in our lifestyle because we're proud of the status quo, at least accepting of it. And, you know, I think it's this sin problem that the church must give its highest priority to. There are a lot of problems here, but the greatest problem confronting our church today is not budgets or better programs or better activities, but it is the problem of getting sin out of our lives once and for all. That's the biggest problem we have. If that problem could be solved, we'd solve all the other problems. But it seems so impossible. How can it be? Our greatest problem is not Daniel 8.14. Our greatest problem is not whether there's a sanctuary in heaven. Our greatest problem is sin in our lives that pulls us down from our great hopes and ideals and our doctrinal truths. And even we know the truth and we are the remnant. Sin is a hypnotic power. It presents itself in the most alluring, tempting forms. Satan has many ways to attract our minds. And you know what? Daily temptations to sin are a far more dangerous thing than the temptation Satan will throw at us at the end of time. Many who are waiting for the blistering time of persecution to come upon us to take their stand for the truth are being daily beset with just the little nagging temptations and falling rather regularly while awaiting that great day in which we will stand for the Lord and we will be we would be willing to die rather than to deny him. We are yielding to all kinds of pressure subtly applied to us, and we sin without even knowing it. Take a look with me at another text. Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22. You know the story well. Verse 31. Good old Peter. Luke 22:31 and the Lord said to Simon Simon behold Satan hath desired to have you that he may sift you as wheat is that blaring persecution sifting the sifting process Satan wants to just draw you into his trap only little gentle devious pressures to deny what he knew to be right if attacked directly would Peter have had a problem what happened when Jesus was in the garden? He took his sword and he was ready to take care of business and he only got the poor guy's ear. He wasn't aiming for an ear. That was Peter. But while mingling rather carelessly with the crowd in the court of Caiaphas, Peter let go his guard and all of a sudden a simple little statement. Do you know him? You're part of them, aren't you? And all of a sudden Peter's guard was down and he was slipping in the whole process. Peer pressure was too much for him. And I submit that peer pressure is our single greatest problem. Peer pressure. Those around us. He was willing to endure prison and death for the Lord. But not the subtle suggestion of a young lady. A servant. Who said, you look like one of them. And then everything was gone. And he couldn't stand up for it. Satan is very crafty. He does not usually attack us head on. He comes in from the side or from behind us. Quite often now, well-meaning friends, well-meaning friends become Satan's best allies to cause us to lose our focus and to slip away from what we know to be right. When they suggest to us things that we shouldn't really be listening to. 
constant compromise with prevailing fads, what's going on around us, the current in thing to do, again, used by Satan. But you know what? More dangerous even than persecution, even than peer pressure, is the influence and pressure of false teachers. Perhaps the strongest pressure being applied to sincere Adventists today is coming from our respected teachers, the ones we have learned from and have been blessed by, who are shifting our attention gradually away from the one problem that faces us as a church and as individuals, that of overcoming sin, to many other interesting topics. How we should run the church. What programs we should use. Should we ordain women? Interesting topic. All kinds of topics that are interesting and fun to discuss and and come to grips with. Is there a future interpretation to Revelation prophecies? All kinds of things to divert us from the one needful thing, sin in our lives. That's keeping the Holy Spirit from total control. The danger is very real. And I don't think it's coincidental that these messages and these issues are coming from a different gospel than has ever been seen in Adventism. It's coming from outside Adventism into Adventism. I don't think that's a coincidence. Go with me to another Bible text, Matthew chapter 18. Matthew 18. The story of a servant who owed a multi-million dollar debt to the king. Verse 26. The servant therefore fell down and worshipped him, saying, Lord, have patience with me, and I will pay thee all. Ah, that was smart, wasn't it? It would take him two lifetimes to pay off that debt. He had no concept of the magnitude of his debt. Now look at verse 27. Then the Lord of that servant was moved with compassion and loosed him and forgave him the debt. What a picture of the Lord's amazing grace. When we have absolutely no way of paying off the mistakes of the past, he forgives completely the debt. And that's what happened right here. I wish the story ended right there, don't you? Unfortunately, it doesn't. After being forgiven this multi-million dollar debt in our terms, he goes out and finds a fellow servant who owed him a little bit. Yeah, it was something. It was a few days' pay. Verse 28, the same servant went out and found one of his fellow servants, which owed him a hundred pence, and he laid hands on him and took him by the throat, saying, pay me that thou owest. And, you know, this ill-treated fellow servant, you read the story, he falls down just like the other servant did before his Lord, and he has the same words, please forgive me. Same language, everything is the same. Didn't he remember his own words? Didn't he remember what had happened just a little while earlier? And the lessons of this parable are very, very clear and they're very vivid. The first servant had no comprehension of the enormity of his debt. No comprehension at all. And when he was forgiven, he had no adequate realization of how much he had been given and how gracious his Lord was to him. He had no understanding of that either. His heart was not touched or humiliated, or drawn by the love of the Lord. He was still self-oriented in his heart. The new birth had never happened in this man. If he'd ever been baptized, he came up from the water 
just the same as he went down into the water. He hadn't been changed by this experience. He never arose to walk in newness of life. Oh, yes, there might have been a superficial ecstasy. I've been forgiven. I am free. I'm not going to jail. I've been saved. And on he went to do what he did. The ecstasy didn't translate into a personal change of heart. Are we also in danger of following a false gospel that promises forgiveness without reformation? That's what the Christian gospel is all about today. Forgiveness, yes, the Lord forgives all your sins. Oh, you know, you'll reform partly, but never completely, not on this earth. Forgiveness without reformation that allows the sin to continue in the born again experience. Yes, you just have to accept it. That mistakes emotional excitement for real Christianity. All of us are familiar with the Willow Creek Community Church of South Barrington, Illinois. And that was the role model for many other churches that have been spawned since that time. More than a few Adventists have been drawn to this kind of thinking, this way of seeker-friendly churches. An Adventist Review editorial in, in 1997 reported that Adventists, both pastors and laypeople, make up one of the largest groups at Willow Creek's half-dozen annual seminars. Well, that's been replaced by other churches and other seminars in the past years, but it's still going strong, and we're still very interested such forms of worship as contemporary music and theatrical drama with a spiritual tone designed to make people feel at ease are now viewed by some Adventists as being indispensable, especially in saving this generation, the generation that is coming up, the new generation of Seventh-day Adventists. G.A. Pritchard wrote a book called Willow Creek Seeker Services. Now, he is not a Seventh-day Adventist. He made some very interesting comments in his book. According to Pritchard, Hybels, that's the main pastor then, and his staff approached the various aspects of culture as merely pragmatic tools to further the communication of the gospel. In other words, music and all of the things of society are neutral instruments which can be harnessed for sacred purposes. Well, didn't Aaron try that approach? Didn't he use something that was familiar to the people? And he said it was a feast to the Lord. He was not trying to deny the Lord. He was not trying to go into idolatry. He was using a symbol that was part of their culture to draw attention to, go, to worship of God. Symbols familiar to culture, again, being used today. Speaking of Willow Creek, Pritchard states as kindly as he can, although their intentions are good, the methods have tended to warp the content of the Christian gospel. And then he gets specific. Pritchard writes of how, despite the clear teachings of Jesus, Willow Creek's official divorce policy allows individuals to divorce their spouses if, quote, their spouse is unwilling to be a viable marriage partner. Isn't that an interesting one? Unwilling to be a viable marriage partner. He recounts a survey taken among Willow Creek attenders which reported that while 91% claimed their highest value was having a deep personal relationship to God, 91%, we want a relationship with God, 25% of the singles, 38% of single parents, and 41% of divorced individuals admitted having illicit sexual relationships in the last six months. Same survey. 
33% had lied, 18% had stolen, 27% of the men had viewed pornography, and 12% of married persons had committed adultery. And the pastor announced the results of this survey to the Willow Creek congregation. And according to, Heib- uh, according to Pritchard, Hybels did not call the congregation to repent for their rebellion against the holy God. Pritchard writes, Hybels did not teach about God's moral law or warn his listeners to examine themselves to see if they were truly in the faith. This is a subtle process of emphasizing the truth of God's loving compassion and willingness to forgive, which has distorted the truth about God's holiness. That's the problem. There is no problem in the wanting to draw men and women to the love of Jesus Christ. But there is a problem when you draw people to Jesus without knowing who he really is. The Holy One of Israel. Holiness. Ellen White said it this way in Selected Messages, Volume 2, pages 18 and 19. There is a desire to pattern after other churches. Inspiration is wise, isn't it? Holy Spirit knows. The young ministers seek to be original and to introduce new ideas and new plans for labor. The sinner is entreated to believe in Christ and accept him without regard to his past life of sin and rebellion. The heart is not broken. There it is right there. Everything is good up to that point. The drawing. But the heart is not broken. There is no contrition of soul. The supposed converted ones have not fallen upon the rock Christ Jesus. That's where the transformation takes place and nowhere else. Humility and confession. I think we need to remember that when great Bible revivals occurred, when great revivals occurred in history, great changes took place in the life of church members at the same time. True revival brings change in the life. The Holy Spirit does not ever bring revival without reformation, ever. And we must never, never lose sight of that. This is no time to plant congregations in which the beautiful people can safely worship with their worldly ways intact without having to address them and deal with them. Bypassing the need for repentance. And, you know, in some of our church papers, we have found interesting things along the way. Little efforts to disparage the standards of obedience, like mean Sabbath keepers and mean vegetarians. If you become that, something happens to your personality and you go negative. One tragic statement, there is no right way to worship God, and the only wrong way to worship is any way that bores or shows little forethought or preparation. Don't you think Cain's offering took a little forethought? What shall I bring? I can't bring a lamb. That would make me humiliated, and I would have to depend on someone dying for me, and I don't need anybody dying for me. It took forethought. And I doubt that the worship of the golden calf at Mount Sinai was boring. I just doubt that. The great divide in contemporary Adventism is not between generations, as some would like to see it. It is between those wishing to follow God's written counsel to its fullest extent and those wishing to live outside that counsel. That's the divide today. 
Ellen White was shown in vision a council of Satan with his angels, discussing the evil angels, discussing how best to destroy the Seventh-day Adventist church. We will, they said, lead them to conclude that the requirements of Christ are less strict than they once believed, and that by conformity to the world they will exert a greater influence with worldlings. Has Satan been successful in that plan? Testimonies to Ministers 474. By conformity to the world, we will have a greater influence with worldlings. I came across these things that we need to be repentant of in a review article. Forgive us for talking to ourselves, being absorbed in Adventist triumphalism while a dying world wanders off into oblivion. Forgive us for not understanding that it is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth. Forgive us for suggesting that all movement to music is evil, when in fact some can build community, health, and innocent joy. Forgive us for turning countless people away from you through willful insistence on peripheral matters of personal taste. Wow, does that cover a broad category. Forgive us for doing all of these horrible things. I came across a very interesting study in Ministry Magazine a couple of years back about tithing in Australia. Very well done. And here are some of their conclusions. Approximately 59% of tithe comes from the over 50 group who earn about 34% of the total income realized by church members as a whole. All right. The youngest member on the executive committee doing this study, said, my age group is not giving tithe. Uh, they continued, the younger a tithe payer is, the less likely he or she is to return tithe. Among the younger groups, while many still tithe, they frequently do not tithe the full 10%. So number one in their conclusions is that younger Adventists are not faithful tithe payers for whatever reason. And then they continued their study, all kinds of graphs, and they, they really did it. They found that tithe is often diverted to places like a church budget and various offerings for the church. They found 32% of the individuals surveyed diverted their tithe to that place. They found that 25% diverted it to Sabbath school offerings for missions. They found 19% diverted their tithe to ADRA and to Red Cross. All kinds of good places to put your donations, but tithe... Tithe, number two, being diverted to improper destinations, not sanctioned by the Word of God. But it seems good. It seems logical. 62% of the under 50 group said, I think I should tithe, but I need to get into the habit of tithing regularly. And so their third conclusion is that young tithers need a stronger motivation to tithe. Get into the habit. Get it regularly. Well, three basic conclusions from a very thorough study of tithing trends in Australia. Of course, it isn't like that here, right? But you know what? In this great article, a nice survey with good statistics to back it up. Not one word about why this was happening. What were the causes of this decline in returning a faithful tithe? Not one word about spiritual decline in personal lives. Not one word about an evangelical gospel which says tithing isn't a salvation issue anyway. Don't worry about it. It's an option. 
Not one word about liberalism or anything else. No reasons for this, just this is the way it is, and we'll have to try to fix it. You know, we're pretty good at our surveys, and we're not so good at figuring out why things go wrong and what needs to be corrected. Now, this is the hard part of my presentation tonight. I like to lay down general principles and let you make specific applications of those general principles. I prefer not to get into specifics. I like to lay down the principle and let you think about how you will apply that principle. But once in a while, once in a while, we need to get specific. And tonight's the night. Can we be saved while knowingly sinning against God and not repenting of it? And then what are those sins which we are participating in, which will cost us our relationship with God if we do not leave them, confess them and surrender them? Can we be saved while making a steady diet of watching just about everything or a fair share of what Hollywood wants us to see? Knowing that what is produced there is produced by people who have little or no regard for God, certainly not for religion and not for standards. The only morality is you give as good as you can get. And the one who is stronger wins. Is that a sin to feed your mind with that? While that while that reaches through to your subconscious mind and by beholding you do become changed not even knowing how the change takes place? Can we be saved in a saving relationship with the Lord while making that our diet? Can we be in a saving relationship with the Lord while we're listening to music that is produced by those who not only ignore God but hate God with all their hearts and are doing everything they can to turn around the lifestyles, the values, and the morality of every young person they can find? Can you be saved in a saving relationship with the Lord while participating in that hatred of God? And then there is the Sabbath. The Sabbath is a holy day, or is it a holiday? Do we look forward to that day? All the pressures of the week are done, and now we can get out and kind of let loose and just kind of have fun and do the things that we enjoy doing and just do whatever feels good? Or is it truly a holy day in which we honor God, stay close to him, commune with him and do enjoy the things that he has provided for us? Or are we simply asking the question, what is fun to do today? Can I do something different today? I'm bored. I want to try something better. Is Sabbath keeping really relevant among us today? Key question. And then there's withholding tithe, right? Talked about that. The Bible says if you keep your tithe back, you rob God. Can you be in a saving relationship while robbing God? Is that possible? Then perhaps the biggest, the hugest problem of our society today is pornography. And I mean the hugest. Came across some interesting things that just blew my mind. It's a huge business. 
And of course, like most businesses, they don't care too much about the end result. They care about the money along the way. In the United States, and these figures are surpassed now, an estimated $10 billion per year is made. That's more than Hollywood's movies. That's more than the rock music industry. It's about equivalent to total U.S. foreign aid. Observers suggest that this is a 1,000 times increase over the past 30 years. That means that there is about 1,000 times as much pornography around us than there was in the 1970s. 1,000 times more. And, of course, you know what has made the quantum jump, don't you? Of course, it's the Internet. It's moved into new realms that it had never even been able to tap before. And this figure is old as well, but the figure that I have is there are 300,000 sources of pornography at the click of a mouse. And they suggest that this industry will grow by 500% per year because of the demand for it. Research suggests that 60% of all web use is sex-related. 60%. So if you're not using your portion, guess where the percentage is going? This, I believe, is one of the most huge temptations today throughout the world and very real in the Christian world and very real in our Adventist world. It's killing us. It's killing us. And then there's dressing. When we choose the clothes we wear, why do we choose them? Is it because someone says that if we don't, we will be out of style and no one will look at us at all or appreciate us and they will laugh at us? What are the reasons for choosing our dress style? Let's be honest here. Now, there's nothing wrong with being in fashion if fashion is modest and careful and right. But still, the question is, do you have to buy a new dress or a new suit because last year's is out of style already? Why do we choose that? Ellen White did make a comment once that the idolatry of fashion is doing more to destroy faith in Adventism than just about any other single thing. Those are just a few of the obvious sins. And then there are the less obvious sins. The sins of the Spirit. Gossip. Isn't it so easy for all of us good people just to pass on a little tidbit about someone? We hear it, and how can we help but telling our best friend about it? We do it with the best of motives. Well, I'm just, this is what I understand, and we, we need to talk about it. And we haven't checked to see if it's true. We don't know that. We've just heard, and we pass it on. And somebody is destroyed by it. Murder by slow degrees. And then there's just plain old impatience. When something doesn't go right and our spirit rises up and we're unhappy because messed up that activity, that plan, that project, and our spirit rises in impatience. Resentment. Resentment. Because we didn't get a fair break. Somebody else got what we should have gotten. We are angry because somebody did something. Right alongside of that is envy. 
They have it better than we have. It isn't fair. I've worked harder than they. They get their grades easy. I have to study twice, three times as hard. All kinds of envy. They have money. I don't. All it goes on and on. Discouragement. Maybe because of all of the above factors. And we feel self-pity for ourselves. We're discouraged. Things aren't right. It isn't fair. I am mistreated. Poor me. And then there's another factor that sometimes gets into the mix, and that's control. Some of us try to control the behavior of others. Not just suggest, not just persuade, but if we have any leverage over them, if they are part of our household, for instance, or if they are in any way connected to us that we can, we control their behavior and their thoughts and their attitudes. There is a control problem among us as well. And then there's a critical spirit. Look at all that's gone wrong. Look at the problems of the school. Look at the problems of the church. Look at the problems in the pastors. Look at the problems here. Look at the problems there. And we spend all of our time in negative diatribes against the things that are wrong in the church. And there are plenty of things to talk about. And our spirit becomes an angry spirit. And we strike out in all kinds of ways. Well, that's just a sampling. I could go on, but I'm not going to. We need to get specific. Can we be saved while practicing these and other known sins and not confessing and repenting and forsaking them? Can we walk in a relationship in which the Holy Spirit is controlling our lives while these or other things that Satan is drawing us to take control of our minds? We need to get serious about this. We need to address it. Here's what Elder Pearson said a number of years ago. Jesus Christ, the angel declares, came to save his people from their sins, not in their sins. This is an important truth God's people must never lose sight of. We can be saved from sin, but never in sin. Salvation is ours when Jesus gets us out of sin and keeps us out of sin. There is no other way. The Apostle Paul emphasizes the need for continual victory over sin in the life of a child of God. Put away lying, he wrote to the believers in Ephesus. Speak every man truth, he urges. Let him that stole steal no more. Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you. In these words, Paul stresses the need for victorious living, overcoming sin. Unruly tongues must be tamed, evil minds must be cleansed, untamed passions must be subdued, proud selfish hearts are to be broken on the rock Christ Jesus. Ours is not a personality problem, it is a character problem. Let's get off that, ah, this is the way I am and that's just the way it's going to have to be. This is the way my parents were and this is, take me for what I am. He, Christ, can, the angel assures us, save us from our sins. Those Seventh-day Adventist weaknesses can and must be vanquished through the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank God for the precious promises our all-sufficient Savior has given us that He can and will save us from our sins. Let's look at one. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, 13, about my favorite. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13.
There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that you are able. Do you realize that every temptation that comes to you has been pre-monitored by God himself? He will not allow Satan to come at you with something that is too big for you to handle. And then it says, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape that ye may be able to bear it. God provides a way of escape. He does. And our search, our search, even a desperate search, should be to find those ways of escape. Find them. Whether it's Bible memorization or prayer or song or whatever it takes to move our minds away from the temptation of the moment. A way to escape that ye may be able to bear it. And no Adventist who accepts Ellen White as an inspired messenger can ever doubt her plain, unequivocal statements about living like Jesus. In that classic book, Desire of Ages, here are just a few samples. Page 24. His life testifies that it is possible for us also to obey the law of God. Page 123. Not even by a thought did he yield a temptation so it may be with us. Talk about amazing statements. Uh, Page 311. There is no excuse for sinning. As the Son of Man was perfect in His life, so His followers are to be perfect in their life. Page 668. As Christ lived the law in humanity, so we may do if we will take hold of the strong for strength. There's the key, isn't it? Not by our strength, but taking hold of Him. Page 827. In their human weakness, they are enabled to do the deeds of omnipotence. I want that. I want to know how to do the deeds of omnipotence. With promises like these, let us not allow bad news bearers come to us with the thought that you can't overcome. It's impossible. Look at your lousy late nature and look at your track record. The good news is Jesus is stronger than all of that. Let's not be bad news bearers. You can't overcome, he'll overlook it, and you'll get to heaven anyway. And then what will we do when we get to heaven? Our mission is to give people a living representation of what Christ is all about in our lives. God does not ask us to do what's impossible. So he has made ways possible that we don't even dream of. The temptation is to pass all these statements off as idealistic. You know? They just can't work. It's a fantasy. You just can't depend on them. But if we take God at His Word, we can rise to the thrilling heights of God's power in our feeble lives and see what God can do. A Christ-like life can be ours. I believe it. Here are a couple of other statements from the same inspired source. Ministry of Healing 180. His life declares that humanity combined with divinity does not commit sin. So then what commits sin? Our lives separate from divinity. No Holy Spirit. Yeah, sure, we can sin then. Selected Messages, Volume 1, 226. By living a sinless life, he testified that every son and daughter of Adam can resist the temptations of the one who first brought sin into our world. Every son and daughter. That's you. That's me. Testimonies, Volume 1, 144, we can overcome. Yes, fully, entirely. Jesus died to make a way of escape for us that we might overcome every evil temper, every sin, 
every temptation. Not much left, is there? Covers it all. Acts of the Apostles 5.31, the Savior showed that through cooperation with divinity, human beings may in this life attain to perfection of character. This is God's assurance to us that we too may obtain complete victory. Fantasy or reality? Thank God we have exceeding great and precious promises. These are promises. They're not commands. These are promises of what God can do for us. The promise is that if we surrender ourselves daily, totally to God's will, He will transform us by His Holy Spirit. He will do that. That's the promise. Just as Jesus was born of the Holy Spirit and every word that came out of His mouth was blessed by the Holy Spirit, every one of us can have that same experience. That's the gospel, and anything short of that is a false gospel. And we need to recognize it when we hear it. Every evil tendency, every habit can be overcome. Turn to the book of Titus with me. Titus chapter 2. Verses 11 to 14. Titus 2. Verse 11, for the grace of God that bringeth salvation, that's our start. Don't start anywhere else. Don't start by, by lifting yourself up by your bootstraps. I'm going to quit this. I'm going to quit that. For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldliness, we should live soberly, righteously and godly in this present world, looking for that blessed hope. And the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us. Why? That he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people zealous of good works. Would we hazard the guess that a purified people truly is a peculiar people in this world today? That's what peculiar is all about. We're not talking about dress styles here. We're not talking about homes that we live in. We're talking about purified, purified people, a peculiar people in this day and age. Where sin abounds, what more abounds than that? Grace, grace, grace is stronger than your sin. Grace is stronger. Can you be more than conquerors through him that loved us? That's another promise, right? All these are promises, every single one of them. Ellen White, God has made it possible for us to be overcomers every day. And he will give needed grace that we may be conquerors. Review March 26, 1889. If we'll just submit our minds to him. So, my friends, let us reject our past experience. Let us throw it aside. Our past experience of sinning and repenting and sinning and repenting. Let us put that aside as a marker for the future. Let's not get into those wheel ruts. Of the old Roman war horses that have plagued us all our lives. Let us reject that as a norm for the future. Let us make new spacing for our lives. New tools, new methods, new ways of approaching life every day. Not the way we've done it. Not the way we've seen as the thought is the only way it could be done. Revelation. Let's finish it up. Revelation chapter 3 verse 10. 
Revelation 3.10. Because thou hast kept the word of my patience, I also will keep thee from the hour of temptation, which shall come upon all the world to try them that dwell upon the earth. Who is going to do the keeping? He will. That's the promise. I will keep thee from your personal hour of temptation and from the world's hour of temptation. If we believe that, no one can take our crown. No one will be able to steal eternal life from us. The devil is trying to do that. Some of our friends are trying to do that. Don't let them. Don't let them take that away. Don't let any grudge that you bear towards someone else in the school, in the church, in, the, in your family, cost you eternal life. It isn't worth it. Yes, they may have wronged you. Yes, you got the short end of the stick. Yes, they said things that were untrue about you. But don't walk out of heaven because of that. Don't walk out of eternal life because somebody hurt you. It's not worth it. It's not worth it. I'm going to finish up with early writings, page 295. We are homeward bound. The new Jerusalem is our place of rest. Again, I looked and saw the earth purified. There was not a single sign of the curse. God's entire universe was clean and the great controversy was forever ended. Wherever we looked, everything upon which the eye rested was beautiful and holy. And all the redeemed host, old and young, great and small, cast their glittering crowns at the feet of their Redeemer and prostrated themselves in adoration before Him and worshipped Him that liveth forever and ever. The beautiful new earth with all its glory was the eternal inheritance of the saints. That's what it's about and nothing else matters. No problems we're facing in this life matter. No pressures we're facing matter. Our focus has to be on, I can't let that slip out of my grasp. We're talking about eternal life here. We're talking about a life way beyond anything we can imagine. When the universe is clean, pure, clean. What a shame if we would find, find it hard to live in that universe. What a shame if we would have to run behind every tree to do the things we like, to hide from the eye of God. God wouldn't want us in that, and we wouldn't either. That's why some can't be there. They would not enjoy it at all. So let us get our minds focused right now on what that life is like today so that I can walk into heaven without culture shock. That I can walk into heaven thinking the same things, doing the same things, saying the same things that I've been saying right here on earth and doing. Don't let anyone take your crown. It's way too expensive to throw it away for what this world has to offer. Let's pray. Would you kneel with me? Father in heaven, we come to you on this Friday night, beginning another Sabbath day. And Lord, we want to keep this Sabbath day holy, not because we're earning our way to heaven, not because we're achieving something, but because you are holy and we're tired of being unholy. Oh, Lord, help us. 
Help us to learn how to live holy lives, lives like Jesus lived, which are the most enjoyable lives in the world and yet are holy. May we see the beauty and the pleasure and the joy that we can have if we put everything in your hands and trust your word and walk away from the sins which we know are breaking our connection with you. May we have that courage tonight, Lord, to walk away if there are sins in our lives that are breaking up that connection. And so, Lord, on this Sabbath day, may we rejoice, may we worship your name, and may we come one step closer to walking in the new earth because of this Sabbath day, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.